Welcome back to the five things this week in social. New year, new things. Each week we break down and take a deep dive look into the five most talked about stories from the world of social. On the show today, we have our friend and data strategy director, Daniel Avon, and our new friend, Jess Womack, a senior planner here at Gray. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Joey. How are you doing? Any New Year's resolutions this year? Or do you not do that? I do kind of do it. One of them is to do more things, which is in line with the five things, but maybe five things a week. Maybe I'll commit to that. All right. Five new things a week. I like it. I, I will keep checking in on progress. We're all about personal growth here on the five things. And Jess Womack, any resolutions for you, my friend? Hey, Joey. Not necessarily resolutions, but... Going off of the new things, Daniel, this might be a good tip for you. Saw online, it's like the cool new thing is to have a new goal every month. So you do 12 new things a year because you're doing something new every month. So that is what I'm doing. And you're welcome to join, Daniel. That sounds fun. I'm Joey Scarillo, and I am resolute to keep on keeping on whatever that means. All right. Now let's get into the things. First up, Daniel explains chat GPT's potential and why schools are banning it. Second, Jess tells us about Meta, who face pressure in how they target ads to teens with their first ever lawsuit from a public school. Third, Daniel breaks down updates to Twitter, including bookmarks, longer tweets, and their own FYP. Then Jess will dive into Apple, who is expecting to invest far more into paid ads and software-backed ads in the coming years. And finally, Daniel tells us YouTube's 2023 predictions. All right, let's dive right in. Daniel, kick us off with the thing that everyone's talking about, at least over the holidays, chat GPT. Yes, let us... Flows right off the tongue. Let us talk <laughs> about the tongue twister, chat GPT. So very apropos that you mentioned this, show because I was going to say the exact same thing, that if you had tech-savvy people at your holiday festivities, chat GPT probably was introduced into the conversation or literally introduced into the conversation. It's one of the latest generative AI innovations to make its way to consumers. It's a chatbot that operates like a Google or Siri, but on steroids because it generates responses to prompts in human-like writing, from answering simple questions to writing full-on essays which more about that in a little bit. At my holiday gathering, we used it to help us generate holiday trivia questions and tell holiday stories given a few parameters like an elf walks into a bar and story comedy ensues. And you can also tell the type of people that were at my holiday celebrations. And it answers follow-up questions as well. So it doesn't just stop there, corrects issues. And to the best of its abilities, as we've seen with an AI, not perfect, it does try to reject inappropriate requests. This sounds like a good and pretty fun thing from OpenAI, which is an independent AI research organization co-founded by our favorite person to mention on this podcast, Elon Musk. But good things can often be taken advantage of. Two months after it's released in November of last year, New York City schools have already moved to ban it amid fears students will use it to plagiarize work. As I mentioned, it responds to prompts in human-like writing. So how better to write an essay you personally don't want to write yourself? Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. On one end of it, the app was released in November 
A senior at Princeton, Edward Tian, has already, as of January, built an app aptly named GPT-0 to detect whether text was written by ChatGPT or not. And this is a resource also freely available to teachers to counter these plagiarism efforts. On the other end of the spectrum, the technology underneath ChatGPT may be familiar to some of you because it's being used via a company called Ada in partnership with OpenAI to help with customer service chatbots from companies like Meta, Canva, and Shopify. There are limitations as with all AI, at least in the current stage, because ChatGPT is geared towards generating new information, reacting to random stimuli. So it's not the best at helping to answer predefined questions like resetting a password or something like that. But there are other algorithms that are better suited for that. This is part of our predictions from the Party Pod last year, moving in this direction of AI technology helping us to get partway there. But its imperfections and tells that it is AI generated prevent it from truly replacing the human touch. Capabilities like ChatGPT can help brands, copywriters, students, but use wisely, take a stab at first drafts, or at least get a sense of where they want to go with something, and they themselves pick it up with their sage, human hands and brains to make it sound more human, but also make it resemble the truth because these AI generators are not infallible. Its imperfections, however, can also make way for a great deal of humor in a hobbyist or brand setting. But as with other AI platforms, you have to ask the right questions. And those questions are the skill that we will see develop. There is a lot to unpack there. And so I suppose the general question that I want to ask you, Jess, what excites you and what scares you about the potential of this chat GPT or this chat, this advanced chat bot in general? I mean, I think the things that scare me are the ways that inevitably companies, people will try to use this to sort of cut corners in places that corners should not be cut. I saw over the holidays that there was a very brief stint at trying to use chat GPT. They need to come up with a new name. <laughs> services for mental health crises and sort of essentially like therapy and things like that. And in that, you run a risk of a lot of things. You run the risk of minimizing people's concerns more so than just bad service or a bad experience. And I think that in the event that people were to try to apply this to health, telehealth, you could see a lot of consequences that would be, you know, not only unkind, but also potentially dangerous. So that's definitely something that scares me. Something that excites me is I think that there is a multitude of ways that this could be used to make people's lives easier and that there could be something really interesting around language translation that could happen. There could be something really interesting around the ways that it could be applied to education in a positive way, given that schools, particularly public schools, have such small teacher to student ratios. There could be something really interesting there. But to say, I think that it all depends on how the technology evolves. Yeah. And who knows, I could maybe just write my intro script with this chat feature and, you know, make my job really easy. (laughs) Um, I have a feeling that this is probably something we will talk more about in other ways. I really like that we bring stories about AI to the show. I think it's really interesting. And I'm going to be interested to see how these AI technologies start to get used in social media and how these tech companies really start to play with this technology. So this could be really big. We'll keep an eye on it for sure. All right, let's jump to the biggest of all social companies, Meta, and they're facing pressure. Jess, why don't you tell us about it? Because I feel like we're sticking with the 
staying in schools theme here. So let's talk a little bit about what Zuckerberg's up to. Yeah, everyone's favorite social media conglomerate giant meta is, you know, they're making some changes to how its apps handle advertising and young users in particular. Under the new rules, advertisers on Instagram and Facebook aren't going to be able to leverage as much personalized data to target ads to teens. Users under 18 will have more choices about what ads they see and why. Essentially, long story short, they're removing a lot of options for targeting teen users and essentially will only be allowing targeting to happen based on a user's age and location. The argument is that both of those things are required in order to show things that are relevant to the user. In about, I think it's two months, three months, sometime early spring, they'll also be rolling out new controls for teen users in which they have the option to see less of a given topic, essentially opting in or opting out of what ads the platform serves them. This is the response of a lot of pressure that they've been facing internationally. There was a huge investigation and fine that happened in Ireland. And most recently, as recently as less than a week ago, Seattle Public Schools, which is the largest K-12 system in Washington state, has filed a lawsuit against Meta as well as TikTok, which I thought was really interesting, and YouTube. So it's one of the first major lawsuits to happen against all of the big social media giants from particularly a public school. They're the first school district in the country to take them on. And the reason why that they feel able to do so is because they have demonstrated or in the lawsuit, they demonstrate that there's a 30% increase in mental health crises in students or in students feeling, quote, so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that they stopped doing some usual activities, end quote. The suit also proclaims, quote, this mental health crisis is no accident. It's the result of the defendant's deliberate choices and affirmative actions to design and market their social media platforms to attract youth, end quote. So this is definitely going to be a history-making case. I suspect that there is going to be a lot of conversation around it because it is really kind of holding these media giants, you know, their feet to the fire as far as what they're responsible for, what they're not responsible for. I think that it'll be interesting given that hundreds of families have tried to sue Meta before. This is not new, but the thing that is new is that it is you know, a public school district that is essentially arguing that this is a public health crisis now. So I think that is the TLDR, but we'll see where it goes. What an interesting case to take on these giants in social media from one school district. Big applause to them. So I'm curious, Daniel, where do you think this goes, right? How big can this get? Where do you think the end game is? Because we all know how important mental health is to us and especially to Gen Z and the youth and kids that are in school. Where do you think this goes? There are a few pieces of this that I find kind of interesting. And part of my head is like, I don't know where this goes because Jess was talking about advertising controls as an example. That's part of the issue, but it's not the issue. Like the the apps themselves operate off of an attention economy. They want to keep users on those apps as long as they can. They're addictive algorithmically, intentionally so, and possibly even more so for a younger person's mind who may have a little bit less self-control. That's why I think Jess mentioned this in our party pod a little bit ago, how in China, TikTok has parameters where users 
younger users there can only spend a certain amount of time on the platform and they see like maybe more educational content or limited views of what you can see on the platform. So we're seeing younger people on these social media platforms kind of given full range for the most part as much as they try to set safety parameters and so forth. So they're kind of in these spirals in super addictive environments that, yeah, will lead to mental health issues, just seeing all the content that there is to see in the world. My hope is that we will take in this country, even though they're kind of advertisement driven, take a step back of maybe we shouldn't make this all about attention, especially of younger folks, and about giving them educational things, giving them things that are good for them, good for their mental health. And by the time they turn 18 and have a little bit more agency and a little bit more self-control, maybe they can have an opener view of the platforms. But I don't know. It's really, it's tough. This age range is very tough. It is tough. And there's not one solve that could make this problem go away, right? These these tech companies, these social companies are very big and they have to report to shareholders who want them to keep growing and keep getting attention. And, you know, to say that the pressure is then on the parent, I think is too much of a task. But I wonder if there's just a sense of balance, right? I know on this show, we talk about the social platforms, but we're not advocating that people spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We talk a lot about mental health and we talk a lot about balance. And I think all of those things are really important. All right, let's jump now to the platform that we've all been talking about for months. It's Twitter. You knew it was coming. Daniel, tell us about what they're up to and the new features they might be rolling out. Yeah, I hate to to go off of the school's topic and take us to Twitter school to learn a little bit about what's to come, their new advancements. As you said, Joey, we have been talking a ton about the tumult of Twitter over the past year. But the updates that we're here to talk about today range from kind of innocuous to interesting and potentially competitive. So in my mind, good news from Twitter and some fun stuff that brands and users can play with. At the release of this podcast, a few of these will be out already. First, let's talk about the feed itself. So as of the release of this podcast, you should be able to toggle between algorithmic and chronological feeds or timelines, in addition to being able to bookmark posts that you want to read or revisit later, but may not necessarily want to like or co-sign that you liked it to your followers. So the former is a bit of a novel idea that was actually introduced and rolled back last year because users didn't like it. Um, However, you now have the capability. It's there for you. You can toggle between what is happening in real time versus a mix of real time and algorithm. And you can also take advantage of this pretty well-trodden capability across other social platforms and apps that's made its way to Twitter in bookmarks. Another thing that's going to be coming in February will be longer form up to 4,000 character tweets. Very different move from the the shortest length social media platform after Vine, RIP. But the caveat is that it will show up to a certain length in feed. And like on other social platforms, you can read the rest by clicking a show more prompt. This is in addition to character formatting, such as bold, italics, and so forth, which is pretty cool, pretty early internet. I love that. Lastly, and for me, possibly the most interesting is it looks like they're gearing to directly compete with TikTok with two different tabs, one being a following tab to see content from people that you follow, the other being a for you tab, sounds very familiar to a for you page, where you can be recommended content. We don't have a ton of information as of yet on what that for you tab will look like. But initial feedback is that it's not amazing just yet. 
but we hope to see it improve over time and are interested to see how users will adopt it. It's interesting because after all of the tumult that we have seen, these feel to be pretty like honest changes. Like they're trying to make some things happen and possibly for the better for users. However, some of them, namely the longer format tweets, do walk away from the spice of the original platform. To quote Oscar Wilde, I would have written a shorter letter, but I did not have the time. Some of them, however, do have potential to offer up new and different opportunities for brands. For example, say the For You tab were to take off, that would be a new place for brands to show up in, ideally in brand safe environments, where users who are looking to discover new and trending things could find brands. So another place to discover is good. And the longer format tweets may help certain brands that need to have T's and C's included, pharma and so forth, have that in the body of the tweet as opposed to like in an image or linked out or something like that. And the diversity of experience for users from tweets to timelines is always a good thing to test out and see how people adopt it and use it for hopefully good. So I'm excited to see what these changes coming from Twitter signal for what they have planned for the rest of the year. Elon's tweet announcing these changes was so mundane, so straightforward. He didn't insult anybody. He didn't make it weird. It was just explaining what these new features are. Jess, which of these features are you most excited about? What are you not excited about? Well, I'm definitely not excited about the thesis long tweets that we're about to be getting from people. I agree. On the internet. I think if I wanted to read extremely long thoughts and rants, I would go back to Tumblr. I would go to Reddit. I would go to Facebook. And the whole fun of Twitter was people trying to be funny or trying to make their arguments in these really short phrases. And I cannot express enough how I'm not looking forward to this experience. I am most looking forward to the potential for an FYP a la TikTok just because I remember when I first joined Twitter, and I'm not even that active on the platform as much these days, but when I first joined Twitter, I remember joining thinking that I was just going to be a feed of like really funny content because that's what I was used to seeing. I was used to seeing screenshots of people's funny tweets. And it took me a while to realize that like, oh no, you have to like wait for people to say something funny. Like just because you follow them doesn't mean that they're going to be entertaining. And I got kind of annoyed that I was seeing all of these this content that I didn't think was entertaining or that I didn't think was fun because that's not what I was promised in my mind. And so <laughs> I think it'll I think that's what I'm most excited about is potentially being shown content that is most relevant to me, most interesting to me, gives me a reason to stay on platform. I completely agree. I am so not excited about these longer tweets. I feel like it disrupts the entire core being of Twitter, which was all about the brief was be brief, right? It was all about, like you said, being funny in a few characters. So I'm not excited about that either, but we shall see. But like we said before, the point of these platforms is keep people on the platform and there's nothing that'll keep people on there better than reading more. Who knows? Maybe I'll just start having chat GPT write all my tweets for me and then maybe I'll start to get some likes. I mean, you never know. You totally could. You could have a whole conversation with yourself at this point. That's not a bad idea. All right. Let's talk about Apple. We don't talk about Apple, I would say, enough on the show. Apple is expected to invest far more into paid ads and software-backed ads in the coming years. Let's talk about ads. Jess, tell us about it. At first, there's a little bit of education in case folks are listening and they're 
not as aware. You know, there's Apple that is the hardware company that makes and shows off the cool stuff that you buy and give folks at Christmas. And then there's sort of the more quieter side of Apple that is more behind the scenes and does more sort of like the software making that you experience in the world, but don't really have as much of like a physical touch on. And one of the things that is getting a lot of rumblings in the tech world is the way that that sort of quieter software side has been increasing the amount of revenue that it's bringing into the company as they are becoming more and more dependent on that that quieter side. You know, we can only buy so many iPhones every year. Right now, a lot of families and households are at their max cap for Apple devices. You have households that are having, you know, the full suite of Apple Watch, Apple phone, and a laptop all under one roof. And there's not much more you can do when you hit that point of saturation from a profit standpoint. So the company as a whole is starting to rely more and more on that quieter side that we don't interact with as much. And part of that, a big part of that is selling ads. And so, you know, this is a playground that Google, Meta, and Amazon have largely dominated over the last decade. And Apple has kind of turned their nose up at for a while. Tim Cook in the past, not too long ago, has talked about how ads were sort of a detriment to a tech experience and how there are tons of privacy concerns that come into the play. But a la Netflix, in the same way that we are watching sort of them roll out more and more ad-based programming, we are expected to see more and more ads within Apple landscapes and Apple environments. So for instance, you know, not too long ago, just like last summer, they were expanded to allow people to buy ads on the front page of the App Store. The last summer, they also started posting a number of job postings, suggesting that they were building a self-service platform for businesses to book ads. We are expected to see in early 2023 them also offer expansions into allowing ads on Apple TV, as well as Apple Music, which is something that hadn't really been done in the past before, but we are expected to see. I was hoping that by the time we recorded this, there would have been some sort of announcement or some more information, but that hasn't come out yet. So we're thinking the main stories that are out there are suggesting that this is going to happen on a sort of product line by product line basis, as opposed to one big announcement at a time. It's drawn a lot of interest. It's also drawn a bit of scrutiny. There's a lot of questions around antitrust laws that, you know, aren't as relevant to us advertisers more so. I think the things that are more interesting for us to think about are sort of the ways in which these ads might differ from ads elsewhere. What I thought was most interesting about the story is that Apple is most and foremost known for being pretty, I would argue, and smooth and, you know, sophisticated. They are sort of this like really well manicured lawn of products in which everything is nice from the packaging to the software to the setup, you know, it's beautiful. And that's something that they take a lot of pride in. And when you introduce sort of an unfettered allowance of ads in the way that Google does and the way that YouTube does, you have less control over what now shows up in this well-manicured lawn. And I think that what's going to be interesting is to see, will they make it so that, you know, there are sort of like visual recommendations? Will there be certain specs that you have to follow to fit sort of that Apple pretty branding? Or are they just sort of going to open the gates in the way that 
Amazon has and the way that Meta has in which brands have free reign over what they're allowed to bring to the Apple world. So I think that's going to be something to definitely keep our eye on as more information unfolds. Yeah, it's interesting. You said Apple TV, and that's exactly where my brain went. And then my head went to Apple Fitness, which if you've ever done Apple Fitness, I do. It is a huge ad for Nike. And so I really hope that Apple's getting that Nike money because all the trainers are in Nike. They, they look great. They're always, it's a well-curated ensemble that they're wearing. But I mean, I'm just looking at Nike logos the entire time. So I hope that Apple's getting that money for that. Daniel, any, any thoughts on this? Any surprises here? I think it's a logical next step. I remember, I think it was last year or two years ago from a hardware standpoint, Apple, like a lot of hardware tech durables companies have really made a sustainability push and are saying, recycle your devices. We're trying to be more responsible about XYZ. So as Jess is saying, households are saturated. They're selling less product. They're encouraging tacitly consumers to buy less product. So they need to make profit somehow. So it only makes sense that they open it to like an advertising or subscription side of things. It is interesting because Apple has kind of lulled us into this trust of them. They like created all of these security protocols and so forth a few years ago to make it harder for advertisers to target people who use Apple devices. And now they're saying, hey, you can advertise with us though. And it's it's a little bit of a question mark of like what the messaging is, but from a profitability model standpoint, it makes a ton of sense. To what what Jess was hypothesizing about like how they're going to introduce different ad solutions. I'm interested to see how they maintain the experience and the sort of premium look and feel of things. They're going to require advertisers to film in HD or whatever, or if they're just going to try to leverage what they know about their consumers to use that data to target elsewhere. I don't know like what is allowed within the realms of data privacy and so forth, but logically it makes sense. Brand-wise, it's a little bit of a departure, but you know they have to make money somehow. And I'm curious to see how they do it. And hopefully they don't have as much hiccups as Twitter has had in trying to understand its new identity in this new age of Elon. Yeah, I still trust Apple. Their trust hasn't been broken yet, but we shall see. All right, let's get into our fifth and final thing for the day. Let's talk about YouTube and their 2023 predictions. Daniel, what are they? Hello. I'm a broken record because one of the topics we talked about today will be in here. On a recent YouTube official trends podcast, and apologies to advertise for another podcast, but we're all friends here. We support the community. Go listen to it. YouTube discussed video trends it anticipates for 2023. Here are just three of them. You can listen to the whole thing to find out more. The first, again, broken record over here, is AI-generated content. This is kind of a no-brainer given how much we've seen and speaking of personal experience talked about ai generative platforms on this podcast even today but ai generators will continue to grow be used into this year but how that takes shape we're kind of interested to see another thing is lower budget production so the way that they 
presented it on the podcast was they first started with Mr. Beast, who embarrassingly, I don't know, but apparently this individual is the most followed person on YouTube. And this YouTube page uses big budgets, lavish scenarios, competitions with high profile guests, like a lot of money is being thrown into this. But contrary to this, YouTube is saying that they're expecting a lot more lo-fi, low cost, low production value stuff to resurge into popularity. We've seen this on TikTok. And it seems like there's a desire for less production, but really more authenticity, less artifice, I suppose. And lastly, hotel and travel. As more and more people make up for lost time with traveling into 2023, I know I did so for 2022, they're probably looking for information, inspiration, and content to help them do so. So we should anticipate hotel and travel content to come personal interest. I'm interested to see how the maturing AI generative landscape develops this new content. We've seen a lot of like, I did this thing and here's what AI spit out. But we haven't seen a ton of like AI made this or AI helped me set this up. So I'm curious to see what AI is going to be used to unlock. As an example, will we use ChatGPT to write a script and then have real humans act out what that script is or animate on behalf of it? Will we be using images or short form video generators to start or set the tone of a video? The possibilities are kind of endless. So it'll be interesting to see how that type of content takes shape. The latter two trends, low budget and travel, seem a bit obvious with the TikTok generation and with the world kind of opening up post or interim pandemic. And it's kind of indicative of how younger generations are getting used to consuming and making content, as well as how people will plan to spend their time for this coming year. For brands, from an art direction standpoint, two potential big sandboxes to play in, either playing a little bit with AI or leaning a little bit more into low budget, authentic type content. And if you are in the travel or travel support vertical, now is probably a good time to get your content and influencer strategies in motion to get ahead of the rush and the saturation that will likely come into market as that content is more and more relevant to consumers. Jess, I know Daniel just mentioned a couple of things that brands could take away. What do you think brands should take away from these predictions? I think it depends on the brand. But for the most part, I think the biggest takeaway that I would flag is the trend towards lo-fi content and whether or not that that holds true. Because there's a couple ways that that trend could go. It could mean that consumers are more interested in seeing lo-fi content full stop, but they want to see things that are less glitzy and glammy and more things that are interesting and feel like you're there or more things that are quick and sort of easy to understand. And if that's the case, then I think the biggest takeaway for brands is to think about what type of messaging that they use within those spaces. I think another way that that could go is it could mean that the trend towards lo-fi content just means there's a trend because a lot of times lo-fi content is also synonymous with shorter content. So that could also be something for them to think about. The third way that I think that trend could go is essentially what I'm saying is there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret a trend towards lo-fi content. But the third one that I think trends should also take note of is whether or not lo-fi content for folks equals more influencer content. Because a lot of times that is a connection that is made in minds of consumers, but not necessarily minds of agencies. Of For me, if I am seeing a, you know, just a girl putting on makeup in her bathroom, to me, that qualifies as lo-fi content. And I think that that, that could be something that is something to think about, as as you mentioned earlier, with influencer strategies. It all depends on sort of how the trend unfolds. Right. And lo-fi also doesn't mean lower budget necessarily. Yeah, great point. 
All interesting things. We will certainly keep an eye on YouTube as the year progresses. I know a lot of our clients work with YouTube, so we will stay on top of it. All right, friends, that's it. We're back. We did it. New year. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, or just send us a thing you want us to talk about. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our panel today, Daniel and Jess. And as always, I want to thank Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And finally... Thank you, listener. We're back. We took a little time off, but we're here for you week to week in 2023. So as always, be social. Woohoo! The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.